All right. Hello, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. You're here, so I'm hoping you are well. Uh, there's been a, a lot of people sick lately. My children are at the tail end of being sick again. Um, it's getting quite old at this point. Um, but there's actually, we, we regularly hear about people continuously getting sick. Um, so I do, we took time last service, and I do want to take time this service to pray over those in our body that are sick. So if you would just agree with me. Lord, we just pray for those that are ill right now. Um, we pray for those, whether it be physical illness, um, something that's besetting them, Lord, um, any sort of um, pains or issues with um, broken bones or anything, Lord. And we just pray that you heal them, um, that you divinely touch them, um, that they can use this opportunity to glorify you and proclaim your name in this season about the wonderful things you've done in their life, Lord. And so we just pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are continuing through our series in Genesis. Now, we've finished up Genesis 1 through 11, which is the macro approach. It's looking at the, the world, the universe, pretty much everything, all encompassing. And now we're looking at the micro, where we hone down to a specific family. Um, Chris did a great job at the um, last week, going through Genesis 12 and 13, when Abram is first introduced to us. Um, the emphasis of that passage being answering the call, answering God's call on your life. And that's not usually going to be an easy thing. Uh, what we saw from Abram... Uh, a little bit different than I had noticed before. I'm not sure if any of you had caught that going through the genealogies, that Abram wasn't just leaving. Don't be a jerk to your mother. <laughs> um, oh. Anyway. <laughs> Abram left his family, um, and it wasn't just a, a small matter. What we found out when looking over those passages was that Abram left his entire extended family. Most of them were still around. They were still, it's probably a huge group of people, and he left when the Lord had called him. And he didn't leave to go to comfort or to wealth. He had no idea what he was heading into. He's heading into the unknown. That's often the case when God calls us. He's not going to call us into, hey, I want to call you to do exactly what you already want to do. I want to call you to the most comfortable lifestyle you ever had, and you just kind of get to sit back. That's what I'm calling you to. No, that, that doesn't happen. God almost always calls us out of our comfort zone to reach people that need him, because often those people that need him aren't in our comfort zone. Aren't, they're not where things are easy. They're where things are difficult, where they need to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Right. And that's what he's calling us to. And I think about those things of comforts, those things that we, that we rely upon. Because when I was looking through this passage and I was looking at what's going on and the issues and the triumphs of this, and it all boils down to where are we putting our faith? I was thinking about whether we believe in God or whether we don't believe in God, we tend to lean on certain things in our lives to put our confidence and our faith in. It could be in our physical capabilities, whether it's in, um, for some of us, it could be in good looks and how just life comes easy because everyone just responds well to you. For some, it could be that you're very physically strong and you're just able to do everything you need to do. It's just everything is just not that hard. 
You could be very capable with your hands. Just anything you set to make or to work, you can just do. And you tend to rely upon that in your life. You lean back on that when times are difficult to the what you are. For others, it could be different than our physical capabilities. It could be your mind. Whether it is great intelligence or charisma or being able to look into situations and that you rely on that to get through life. Whether it's I get as much information as I can and I can gather it and I can use that to address any sort of situation. Or you know how to walk into a room and you just emanate personality and everybody wants to hear what you say and everyone's willing to listen to your words and you lean upon that during challenging situations in your life, knowing that, well, at least I can motivate people if I need to. At least I can call people to arms. At least I can get people to listen to me if I need to. And you lean back on that during difficult times. It could be possessions. It could be your ability to acquire wealth. It could be your profession. You put your faith and your confidence in what you've laid aside. I think a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about retirement and what's to come. And you plan your life about what will be in the future. And making sure that's secure and putting your confidence in that chunk of money down the road. What are you going to do then? You're putting your faith in that. And I'm not saying any of these is a knock on anyone. These are natural things we do. But the thing we must realize is none of those things are for certain. And all of those things will most certainly fade at a certain point in our lives. My dad has done construction his whole life. His body is betraying him now, whether it be knees or joints or back or all of them. Eventually, we break down. That strength, that ability will fade just because you can't continue in that forever. With our minds, no matter how intelligent you were, eventually that edge gets dull. I'm sorry. You can keep working at it, but it, there's a certain point in your life where you reach a peak there, and then it starts to diminish. And there are some where it's even faster. These are one of the things that scares me when my mind is what allows me to do my work, and that eventually that might fade someday. It's a terrifying thing. Is it terrifying because that's where I'm putting most of my faith? All of these things will eventually fade. No matter what possessions, no matter what you've saved up, no matter what you've set aside for the future, if God calls you to come home today, none of that will have made any difference. Ultimately, where are we putting our faith in the Lord? And so what we're going to read in our account today is a lot of people that put their faith in all of those things, and it amounted to nothing for them. And one man that put his faith in the Lord and how that redeemed him. So out of Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemer, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Sea of Salt. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava Kirathim, the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazor. 
Hazaz, Hazazan Tamar. That's six people groups before they ever got to the people they were headed to conquer. <laughs> then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Sinar, and Ariat, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So this is 11 people groups the four are going after. And they trounce them all. We're going to throw up a map here, and I'm going to use my very special um, pointing device. I wanted to use the laser pointer, but when I tried it this morning, it did not work on the screen. So um, Jen was very generous. She got us a laser pointer because she was seeing me try to stumble over things every week. And when I tried to use it this morning, it works well on the wall, and it hits the screen, and it bounces off. So my very special of devices, the drumstick, will work for today. So, we are in the time of city-states, city-state kingdoms, and not all kingdoms are created equal. It really depends on the amount of influence you are able to exert over your region, and most likely a city-state was just that. It was a city, the region right out of it, where they were able to exert control. Some people were very successful at this and able to exert more control over a greater region, such as the region of Alam. As you can see, it's quite a big area of control compared to Shinar, compared to Elisar, and Goi. These were the four allies. The five kings that rose up against them occupied this space right here. So it's really not even comparable to Elam alone. They're not, they're not a big force. And Elam comes with three other allies to go and come and put these subjects back in their place, so to speak. Now, the area that you controlled was going to directly influence the amount of people you could arm, the amount of people you could train up to be soldiers. And that's going to come into place as we continue along in our account. But things aren't looking good for the five kings, let alone all the people groups. So this is every single one of these numbers is one of the battles that occurred today. The very last one, when they sweep down and around and they're coming back here, is where my map shows. But Chris enlightened us, enlightened us last week of where Sodom is most likely not on the southern side of the Dead Sea, but on the northern side here. And actually, when we look at the rest of the account, and when Abram returns, it makes a lot more sense at being on the northern side anyway. So I'm fairly certain they're correct. Um, but as we go through here, it says, now this valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Bitumen is tar. The uh, common translation of this is asphaltum, which is what we use to make asphalt. It's sticky, it's black, it holds things together, it waterproofs things. It's difficult to get out of. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham, Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. What was interesting to me is that there are five kings, and it's talking about two of them that fled. So Sodom and Gomorrah abandoned their allies. The others, we can assume, have been captured or defeated at this point. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. So when they say the oaks of Mamre, it's not just the name of a place. There's actually a guy named Mamre, and those are, that's his forest. It's his oaks. 
So him and his two brothers are allies of Abram. It's a very small coalition they have in this region. Um, it's just really wise to make friends with those who are around you. It's just, that's actually something we can take into our lives right now. Make friends with your neighbors. It's just wise to make sure the people around you like you. When Abram heard that the kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is the only number we're going to get, is that 318. And so it's really difficult if you don't do a lot of extra digging to find out, is this a big number? Is this a small number? What does this mean? For a household, this is quite a large number of armed men, trained soldiers, because there's a big difference between people who are trained to fight and people who are capable of fighting. Um, when we read about the Israelites when they come out of Egypt into the desert and they're headed up to the promised land and they take a survey, they survey everyone that is able to fight, whether they're trained to or not. And there's at that point 603,000 men trained are able to fight as they go into the land of Canaan. Now, if you think 603,000 people all at once stampeding outside your door, you're probably not coming outside whether they're trained or not. It doesn't matter if they know how to swing the sword, they just have to run over the top of you. <laughs> and just consider this is what they saw when they were in Jericho. So the first city that they came into from the and when they were taking over the promised land was Jericho and they're stomping around it. Well, if you're in lockstep and you're stomping, that shakes things. <laughs> 603,000 people stomping the ground around your city. I'm sure it was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. That's not exactly the case here. That's a story for another day. <laughs> but I see a lot of faces out there like, Whoa. <laughs> Now, in this case, 318 men for a household was a lot. I know that because I was looking at a study up done in Denmark researching the Middle Bronze period, and they're looking at burial sites to see what people were buried with, because they were very commonly buried with whatever tools of the trade that they had at the time. So if they were buried with a sword or a bow, you can tell that they were a warrior for their profession. So what they found out is most large farm areas, which would be one big family, kind of like what Abraham is set up here as, would have had maybe one swordsman and maybe one bowman there. So two trained people, that's, that's their job. They're not farmers, they're just trained to defend from the wolves, defend from marauders. One swordsman, one bowman. There weren't a lot of swordsmen out there. Swords were actually hard to produce, and they were expensive. And so unlike video games and movies of the time where everyone's got a sword, that's not how it was. It was a very, um, a very rare and prized piece of equipment. When we read the book of Samuel, and it talks about King Saul and his son Jonathan, they were the only two people in the entire army with a sword. So very common, what would happen is they would have spears. Spears are far easier to make. Or they would have slings. Now, a sling is a couple pieces of leather with a catch spot in the middle where you put the round stone. Much easier to make. All you need to do is spend a lot of time practicing. Even a bow would have been much, difficult, much more difficult to come by. You need a special kind of wood for that to be effective. So two people for a large family would have been normal. 318, it's a pretty big number. So we have to compare that. Well, what about an entire empire as far as an army? What about these city-states? What could we expect from that? Well, a large army for a kingdom would have run around 5,000 people. 
Now, that's not necessarily a coalition of kings, which would commonly get in the numbers of 20,000 people. If we're talking about a coalition of empires, they could field a force of around 135,000, which is what happened out of the book of Judges. Um, when we read about Gideon, when he faced the Midianites with 300 men, there's 135,000 of them. The whole point of those numbers in, for us to see is that it was impossible for them to win aside from God. When we look at this context, Abram went with his household and his allies. Their numbers are probably somewhere in the range of 500 to 1,200. Going up against a coalition of kings, which are somewhere in the range of 5,000 to 20,000. The odds are not in their favor, but they're trusting in the Lord. And what happens? And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. So by the grace of God, Abraham and his allies have won. And now they're going to return. And there's going to be a choice presented of what happens when they return. How will they respond to what God has done for them? Then he brought back all the possessions and all, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, it's interesting because Melchizedek, we haven't heard him from him at this point, and we will not see anything to have to do with Melchizedek after this. This is the only encounter of all of Scripture that we see with this particular individual. There's some commentary in Scripture later on, but this is the only thing that happens. So there's a lot of speculation associated around who he is, and even why is he even here? Because it's none of his, his kingdom, his region, isn't, hasn't been taken over. So some people have speculated that this is one of the incarnations of God, kind of like how he appears later on to Abraham on the side of the road. Um, some people have just speculated that he's uh, just an example of Christ. Some speculated that well, he just happens to be a king of this area serving God. I don't know. Nobody really knows. It's all speculation. All we have is what the writer from Hebrews tells us, which we're going to get to in a moment. But I do know that these two kings are representing Abram's two choices. Because first of all, you have the king of Sodom coming out to meet him. And Sodom, what we've seen from the beginning of the account and how he responded in the battle, and what we know of the city of Sodom, he represents rebellion. He represents sin and leading people into sin. And he represents selfishness. He abandoned his allies. It's the only reason he's able to be there right now. Everyone else was captured. This is the choice of Sodom. And then we have Melchizedek. Now, in order to understand what Melchizedek represents, we have to understand the language. His name is uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. You translate his name, that is the literal meaning of it. He rules over Salem. The translation of that word is peace. So here's the king of righteousness who rules over peace. Compared to the king of rebellion and sin and selfishness. When we understand the language, the juxtaposition becomes very apparent to us of what's being shown here before Abraham. Who are you going to align with here? Before we really delve into that, I'm going to talk a little bit about this character, Melchizedek. And um, 
the fact that he's a priest of the God most high. And there's, there's a phrasing that we see from Psalm 110, verse 4. It says, uh, Psalm, Psalm 110 is one of our prophetic psalms that is alluding to the Messiah that is to come. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? What is it meaning, the order of Melchizedek? Because all the priests that we know about come from the tribe of Levi. They're the ones that were given the priesthood, and only they could do this. You had to prove you were a Levite to serve God in this way. It was so important that you could prove your lineage that when the Levites and the rest of the tribes of Judah came back, from the exile, and they rebuilt the temple, they wanted to serve again. They wanted to serve in the temple. They wanted to reinstate themselves in their duties as priests. Those that could give proof of their lineage were allowed to serve. Those that were not were declared unclean and were banned from serving before God. It's not the fact that you're willing to do it. If you could not prove that you fit this line, no for you. Is it such a big thing for them. But then we have Melchizedek here. He's not a Levite. Levi hasn't even been born yet. Long before he's been born. Because it's Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. And his 12 sons become the 12 tribes, one of them being named Levi. The priesthood isn't even instituted until 400 years after that. So we have Melchizedek here. How is it that he is priest of the Lord God Most High. So this is the commentary from Hebrews 7. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I thought that was a terribly strange thing to say because there's plenty of people throughout Scripture that were given no genealogy for. We don't know who their mother or father is. We don't know when they were born, and we don't know when they died. But they're there, and this claim isn't being made. So why is it being made here? And so we have to look at what does it mean to be a priest of the Lord God Most High? What is that role? What is the purpose of it? How do we look at it compared to the other things that God instituted? Because there's three primary roles for the Israelites. There's priest, there's prophet, and there's king. The king is meant to protect the people on God's behalf. It's meant to watch over them and keep them safe. The prophet is meant to speak to the people on the behalf of God. The priest is meant to speak to God on behalf of the people. He is sacrificing his life and what he's doing, not dying, but that is what Jesus did for us. But he is living a life of sacrifice on behalf of the people to petition God for their benefit alone. It is meant to be a selfless job where you are doing something entirely for the benefit of others. That is the role of the priest of the Lord God Most High. 
Now, in the likeness of Christ is that it's without beginning or end. It's always, always petitioning the Lord on our behalf. We look at what Christ did when he came to this earth. He did not come to rule and reign over us. He came to serve for that time. He rules and reigns now. But what he did when he came to be our priest was to petition God for us to make atonement for us, to ask nothing of us in him doing this. The only thing Christ ever asked of us was that we would believe. There's nothing for you to do. There's no more work to be done. The work of the great high priest continues and always will be. He petitions the Lord continually on behalf of all the saints. And the only thing you need to do is put your faith in God. Amen. This is what this means. This is what this is alluding to. That is the order of Melchizedek. Someone that is, it's not the point of the beginning, the point of the end isn't there. The point is what their purpose is, is to sacrificially serve on your behalf. And this is what Jesus does. So it leads us to a very strong juxtaposition of peoples here. We have Salem and we have Sodom. We have peace and we have rebellion. So what is Abram going to do? So Melchizedek speaks to Abram and he says, and, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. These are very drastically different responses. First of all, we have the king of Salem. We have the king of righteousness. We have the king of peace. And what is his primary focus? Glory be to God, Abram. You have come back from this amazing thing. God fought for you. God delivered you. The only reason you and your allies have won this is because of the amazing things that God has done in your life. We need to celebrate. We need to remember. And how are we going to remember the Lord? With bread and wine. It is no coincidence that the way we remember what Christ has done for us is with bread and wine. It's a moment of remembrance. Let's share a meal together. Let's celebrate the amazing things that God has done. Let's not let this moment pass without giving glory to who glory is due, Abram. Yeah. And it's all Melchizedek said to him. He asked for nothing. He gave a blessing. He gave provisions. And he glorified God. Abram responded by giving him a tenth of everything. And then we have Sodom. We have a different choice. We have a different statement. He says, give me the people, and you can keep all the stuff. And I thought about that. The first time I'd read through, and I'm thinking this is king of Sodom. All of his people's been taken away. He's just being a good king. He's thinking about his people. I've thought about it more. Those four kings swept through and took out 11 people groups. And they don't just leave them afterwards. They don't say, good fight, fellas. No, they take you. 
You are their slaves now, and they take all of your stuff as well. Eleven people groups hauled away, and eleven people groups coming back. And Sodom saying, give me all the people. You can have all the stuff, Abram. It's a good deal. Think about it. You're a foreigner in this place. You've got a few small allies. Think what powerhouse we could be. You keep all the stuff. You'll be rich, Abram. Wealthy beyond compare. And we will be allies forevermore. When I, when I realized that, I thought, well, that's a lot of gall to start with since he was just defeated and Abram wiped them all out. Abram doesn't have to give him anything. He could keep it all. This is the choice that he's being presented with. Greed, selfishness, putting his faith in possessions and wealth. Offered two choices. Remember God. Remember self. And so we see how Abram responds here. First of all, he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. This is the tithe. This is where the tithe is derived from. Tithe literally means tenth. And we should ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the tithe? Why on earth would I be doing this? It's very counterintuitive to give up the provisions I've worked so hard for that will sustain me, sustain my family, that will keep us going, that will set aside funds for the rainy day. Why on earth would I give that away? It's a very good question to ask. And God has a response to us. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 14, as soon as it will load. There we go. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field. So I'm beginning in verse 22, for those of you that are writing it down. Year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. The purpose of tithing is to learn to fear the, your Lord, God, always. How does tithing do that? Well, have any of you ever grown anything? Yeah. A few of you. If you haven't, I would highly encourage you this year, even in this little small planter, when spring comes around, put a seed in there and watch it grow. It's such an amazing, remarkable experience that first time you've done this and you watch those little leaves poke up out of the ground. You're like, I did that, but I did nothing. It's a miracle. And then it continues to grow and grow and then food comes off of it. Think about livestock. I'm, I'm, not all of us might be able to raise livestock, but just think about a cow for a moment. It's a big creature, right? And a cow produces meat and milk. And it's a lot of meat, and it can be a lot of milk. And what do cows eat? Grass. grass and a little bit of water. You go home, you grab some grass and some water, and you make me some milk. <laughs> How about a pound of ground beef? It's a miracle what happens there between grass, water, beef. That's a miracle. It's a recognition of, this is an amazing place God has put me and what he's provided for me. This is amazing, Lord. I'm giving this back in recognition that it all comes from you. It's a reminder that it all comes from him. 
That's why we tithe. But what's it for? Because that's a good follow-up question. I'm giving my tithe, but I want to make sure that it's well handled. So what's it for, Lord? Later on in this passage, it tells us. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. It has two purposes. One, for those whose lives have been completely dedicated to God. It's their full-time living. They still need to eat. And for those that don't have the ability to produce a living on their own. A sojourner at that time would have had no land on their own. They're just hoping to get some sort of work, to make some sort of meager gains to live. And the fatherless and the widow is, is kind of like living on the streets at this point. Your, your existence was very meager and very bleak. The point of this is to make sure that everyone eats. It's remarkable how many laws are in Scripture are just to make sure that everyone eats. Such a basic simple thing. That is what the tithe is for. So then this is how he responds to Melchizedek with honoring God. How is he going to respond to Sodom? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. There's not a person on this earth that will claim that he has made Abram rich. Only God. All glory will be to God. His faith was utterly in the Lord at this point. We'd read last week about how he had wandered away, and this is a story of his return. This is actually a cycle that we see of humanity. When they return, it's in strength. It's an amazing faithfulness, and that's what we're seeing right now is God wants us to be at this spot where you're going to set it aside. I'm going to not put my faith in that, even though I could take it right now if I want to, but I'm going to put my faith in the Lord, my provider, the one who makes the grass grow the one who's given me everything. No, I will not be tempted by that. I am utterly for God. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. You know, those three guys, those families that went and risked their lives to get your stuff back? Yeah, you're paying the bill. <laughs> but everything else is going back to where it belongs. I'm not going to take any of it. That's not why we went. Went for family and for freedom, and the Lord provided. And there's some emphasis on who the Lord is here, because we read through the passage when it says, the Lord God most high. Well, that phrasing, the God most high, is El Elyon. When Abram says it, he says, the Lord, El Elyon, and the Lord is translated as Yahweh. This is significant and important because he's talking to a Canaanite now who has a little bit of a skewed belief system. Their great high creator God is the God El, E-L. And that's who this could be misconstrued as. So what Abraham is doing here is saying, we're going to make no mistake about who glory belongs to. 
and what you're putting your faith in, things that don't matter and a God that isn't, is why you haven't been delivered out of this. It is only because of Yahweh, the true God of the universe, that any of this has been possible this day. And that he's not going to put his trust in wealth because ultimately that won't deliver from anything. Out of Proverbs 11, it says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectations of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. If you wanted a moral of chapter 14, it's right there. Proverbs 11, 4 through 8. The riches, the wealth, the, all these things we put our faith in, it, they will not profit at the end. When death has arrived, they mean nothing. They will not grant you a single day more. I want to end with the question, where are we putting our faith? And I have two verses. One comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books because it's written by a grumpy old man. <laughs> but grumpy old men have a lot of wisdom. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I was thinking of an analogy upon this, about how much focus we have, about how often we return back to those things, those familiarity, uh, familiar leanings that we put our faith in, whether whatever talents or abilities, whatever we've been blessed with on this earth, we lean back on that time and time again because we're fo so focused on here and now. And I think about the life that God wants for us and his perspective on it all. And the time on this earth, I was considering we have a cup of water, and the time on this earth is just a drop. It's just a single drop of the life that God has in store for you. He's got a whole cup. He says, I want you to have the whole cup. A drop, that's not even going to quench your thirst. I've got eternity in store for you. This mere 80, 90, 100 years, what is that in light of a billion, two billion, all of eternity? I have a whole cup for you. The only way you get to drink from that cup is to put your faith in God and not your faith in these things that will all go away. Out of Psalm 62, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate, a delusion. In the balance, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. 
Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he preached of Christ and he preached of what the people had done and it cut them to the core and they said, what must we do? What must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, all of you. It's the only thing you need to do is believe and turn back to God. Amen? Would you stand with us? Thanks, Joe. As the music team comes up, we started off with where do you put your faith? And I was thinking about that too. And we asked God to be in control of our circumstances, which do we really believe that he will do something with those circumstances? Where do we put our faith? Thanks again, Joe, for that message. We're going to uh, move into a time of worship and communion. We have uh, the cracker and the, the juice representing Jesus when uh, his body was brutally broken for us and the juice which represents his blood which was spilled for us. God sent his son here to die for us and then he raised him up three days later. This is a time right now to remember what he did for us in that process. To repent. Maybe you don't know Jesus. This is that time. Maybe you don't know him. This is that time so that you can come up here and share in this with us. You don't have to be a member of this church to do this. If you're a Christ follower, please, please join us. The way we do it here is you just come up and get it. But this is that time to remember this. We also have the boxes up here in the back and the front to give back to God and what he's put on your heart. Nothing out of obligation here and only what you can do. It's all his. He gave it to us. Let's share in communion together.